In the foggy region along the Pacific coast from Grays Harbor to Humboldt Bay, there ranges a kind of creature that has caused much annoyance in the lumber woods. This is the gumbaroo, which luckily is so rare that only once in a great while it is, is one seen. It is believed to remain in hiding most of the time in the base of enormous burned-out cedar trees, from where it sallies forth occasionally on frightful marauding expeditions. During these periods of activity, the beast is always hungry and devours anything it can find that looks like food. A whole horse may be eaten at one sitting, distending the gumbaroo out of all proportions, but failing to appease its hunger or cause it the slightest discomfort. Hello, my name is Torn Atkinson, and I will be your guide to the fearsome critters of North American folklore. In North American folklore, fearsome critters were tall tale animals jokingly said to inhabit the wilderness in or around logging camps, especially in the Great Lakes region. Today the term may also be applied to similar fabulous beasts. Fearsome critters were an integral part of oral tradition in North American logging camps during the turn of the 20th century, principally as a means to pass time or as a jest for hazing newcomers. In a typical fearsome critter gag, a person would casually remark about a strange noise or sight they encountered in the wild, and another accomplice would join in with a similar anecdote. Meanwhile, an eavesdropper would begin to investigate, as Henry H. Tryon recorded in his book, Fearsome Critters, 1939. Okay, Sam would lead with a colorful bit of description, eh? And Walter would follow suit with an arresting spot of personal experience. Every detail being set forth with the utmost solemnity and with exactly the correct degree of emphasis. At the end, so deftly had the cards been played that the listener was completely convinced of the animal's existence. This method of presentation is widely used. For the best results, two narrators who can keep the ball in the air are necessary and perhaps an occasional general question is tossed to someone in the audience, such inquiries being invariably accorded a grave corroborative Nod. Lumberjacks who regularly traveled between camps would stop to swap stories, which eventually disseminated these myths across the continent. Many fearsome critters were simply the products of pure exaggeration. However, a number were used either jokingly or seriously as explanations for both unexplained and natural phenomena. For example, the hide-behind served to account for loggers who failed to return to camp while the tree squeak offered justification for strange noises heard in the woods. A handful, whether intentionally or unknowingly, mirrored descriptions of actual animals. The mangrove killifish, which takes up shelter in decaying branches after leaving the water, exhibits similarities to the upland trout, a legendary fish purported to nest in trees. In addition, the story of the filly-loo about a mythical crane that flies upside down may have been inspired by observations of the wood stork, a bird that has been witnessed briefly flying in this manner. In particular instances, more elaborative ruses were created using taxidermy or trick photography. I have here in my hand Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods with a Few Desert and Mountain Beasts by William T. Cox and Coert Dubois, Coert Dubois from 1910. I read the first paragraph on the gumbaroo. And what else can I tell you about the gumbaroo? 
The specimens seen are reported to have been coal black, but that may have been due to their being smirched with the charred wood. In size, the beast corresponds closely to a black bear, for which it might be mistaken, only for the fact that the gumbaroo is almost hairless. To be sure, it has prominent eyebrows and some long bristly hairs on its chin, but the body is smooth, tough, and shiny, and bears not even a wrinkle. The animal is a tireless traveler when looking for food, but is not swift in its movements or annoyed in the slightest degree by the presence of enemies. Whatever strikes the beast bounds off with the same force. Its elastic hide hurls back with equal ease. The charging elk and the wrathy hornet. Oh, wrathy with a W. A rock or peavy. I don't know what a peavy is. P-E-A-V-E-Y. Isn't that an amp brand name? Thrown at the creature bounds back at whoever threw it. And a bullet shot against its hide is sure to strike the hunter between the eyes. Oh my god. It is believed that the scarcity of gumbaroos is due to their combustible character and the prevalence of forest fires. The animal burns like celluloid with explosive force. Frequently during and after a forest fire in the heavy cedar near Coos Bay, woodmen have insisted they have heard loud reports quite unlike the sound of falling trees and detected the smell of burning rubber in the air. Now when we say loud reports, reports in this context means sounds. Let's look it up. Definition of report. Yes, a loud noise as from an explosion, as in the report of a distant cannon. And now you know. Oh, and uh, PV. A cant hook with a sharply pointed end used in handling logs. Well, that makes sense. Yes, like the log driver used in the log driver waltz. Now, the squonk. Lacrimocorpus dissolvens. I think I'll get my special guest, David Attenborough, to narrate this one. The range of the squonk is very limited. Few people outside of Pennsylvania have ever heard of the quaint beast, which is said to be fairly common in the hemlock forests of that state. The squonk is of a very retiring disposition, generally traveling about at twilight and dusk. Because of its misfitting skin, which is covered with warts and moles, it is always unhappy. In fact, it is said by people who are best able to judge to be the most morbid of beasts. Hunters who are good at tracking are able to follow a squonk to its tear-strained trail, for the animal weeps constantly. When cornered, and escape seems impossible, or when surprised and frightened, it may even dissolve itself in tears. Squonk hunters are most successful on frosty, moonlit nights, when tears are shed slowly and the animal dislikes moving about. It may then be heard weeping under the boughs of dark hemlock trees. Mr. J. P. Wentling, formerly of Pennsylvania, but now at St. Anthony Park, Minnesota, had a disappointing experience with a squonk near Mont Alto. He made a clever capture by mimicking the squonk and inducing it to hop into a sack in which he was carrying it home when suddenly the burden frightened and the weeping ceased. Westling unslung the sack and looked in. There was nothing but tears and bubbles. Occasionally, it happens that inexperienced hunters and others wandering in the woods disappear completely. Guides are unable to locate them, and all kinds of theories are offered to explain the disappearances. From the hardwood forests of the Cumberland Mountains, Tennessee, comes the rumor of an animal called the Whirling Wimpus, the existence of which may throw some light upon the fate of those who fail to come back to camp. 
According to woodsmen who have been looking, quote-unquote, timber in eastern Tennessee, the Huimpus is a bloodthirsty creature of no mean proportions. It has a gorilla-shaped head and body and enormous front feet. Oh, <laughs> it's a gorilla-shaped head and body and enormous front feet. Its unique method of obtaining food is to station itself upon a trail, generally at the bend in a trail, where it stands on its diminutive hind legs and whirls. The speed is increased until the animal is invisible, and the motion produces such a strange droning sound, seeming to come from the trees overhead. Any creature coming along the trail and not recognizing the sound is almost certain to walk into the danger zone and become instantly deposited in the form of syrup or varnish upon the huge paws of the wimpus, the whirling wimpus. Formerly quite common from Maine to Michigan, today the Dungavan Hooter is only occasionally met. A marsh dweller dangerous to human beings, shaped a good deal like an alligator, but curious as to equipment in that he has no mouth. The nostrils are abnormally large, the legs short, and the tail thick and powerful. The only cry is a loud snort. Concealing itself with satanic cunning behind a whiffle bush, the Dungavan Hooter awaits the passing logger. On coming within reach of the dreadful tail, the victim is knocked senseless and then pounded steadily until he becomes entirely gaseous, whereat he is greedily inhaled through the wide nostrils. Rum-sodden prey is sought with especial eagerness. Better known, you may have heard of the Snolligoster. Not to be confused with the Snallygaster, which I will report on forthwith. In the cypress swamps of the south, the, and particularly in the region about Lake Okeechobee, Florida, woodmen tell of a strange and dangerous animal known as the Snallygoster. This creature is of enormous proportions and is credited with a voracious appetite. Worst of all, its appetite is only appeased by the eating of human beings. In form, the Snallygoster resembles a huge crocodile, but it is covered with long, glossy fur and has no legs or fins except one long spike on its back. A person naturally wonders how such an animal may, can manage to travel through the water and the mud of the swamp region where it lives, but nature has provided it with a means for driving itself along. On the end of its tail are three bony plates, much resembling the propeller on a steamboat. These revolve at a terrific rate, driving the animal like a torpedo boat through the mud. They serve other purposes as well. For when a snollagoster catches an unfortunate, I'm not going to read that word, upon which it delights to feed, it tosses the victim up and backward as to impale him upon the spike fin, where several may be carried until sufficient for a meal have been collected. The snollagoster's tail is then driven into the mud and revolved until a hole is scooped out and the victim scraped off the spike and tossed in, whereupon the snollagoster beats them into a batter with its rapidly revolving propeller, and inhales them. Now the Snallygaster is a bird-reptile chimera originating in the superstitions of early German immigrants, later combined with sensationalistic newspaper reports of the monster. Early sightings associated the Snallygaster with Frederick County, Maryland. The area was settled by German immigrants beginning in the 1730s, 
Early accounts describe the community being terrorized by a monster called a Schnellergeist, meaning quick ghost in German. The earliest incarnations mix the half-bird features of a siren with the nightmarish features of demons and ghouls. The Schnellergeister was described as half-reptile. Going into my Red Skull impression here. Half-reptile, half-bird, with a metallic beak lined with razor-sharp teeth. Occasionally with octopus, this octopus-like tentacles, it swoops silently from the sky to pick up and carry off its victims. The earliest stories claim that this monster sucks the blood of its victims. Seven pointed stars, which reputedly kept the Snadagaster at bay, can still be seen painted on local barns. Newspaper accounts in 1909 describe encounters between local residents and a beast with enormous wings, a long-pointed bill, claws like steel hooks, and an eye in the center of its forehead. It was described by making screeches like a locomotive whistle. A great deal of publicity surrounded this string of appearances with the Smithsonian Institution offering a reward for the hide. U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt reportedly considered postponing an African safari to personally hunt the beast. It was later revealed that these reports were part of a hoax perpetrated by Middletown Valley Register editor George Roderick in an attempt to increase readership. Oh, those bastards! Okay, this one's great. The Slide Rock Bolter. Macrostoma saxiperumptus. In the mountains of Colorado, where in summer the woods are becoming infested with tourists, much uneasiness has been caused by the presence of the Slide Rock Bolter. This frightful animal lives only in the steepest mountain country, where the slopes are greater than 45 degrees. It has an immense head with small eyes and a mouth somewhat on the order of a sculpin running back beyond its ears. Sculpin is a, uh, I know it's a fish. The tail consists of a divided flipper with enormous grab hooks, which it fastens over the crest of the mountain or ridge, often remaining there motionless for days at a time, watching the gulch for tourists or any other hapless creature that may enter. At the right moment, after sighting a tourist, Ah, tourists. It will lift its tail, thus loosening its hold on the mountain, and with its small eyes riveted on the poor unfortunate and drooling thin skid grease from the corners of its mouth, which greatly accelerate its speed, the bolter comes down like a toboggan, scooping in its victim as it goes, its own impetus carrying it up the next slope, where it again slaps its tail over the ridge and waits. Whole parties of tourists are reported to have been gulped at one swoop by the slide rock bolter, and guides are becoming cautious about taking parties far back into the hills. The animal is a menace, not only to tourists, but to the woods as well. Many a draw through spruce-covered slopes has been laid low, the trees being knocked out by the roots or mowed off as by a scythe where the bolter has crashed down through from the peaks above. A forest ranger, whose district includes the rough country between Ophir Peaks and the Lizard Head, conceived the bold idea of decoying a slide rock bolter to its own destruction. A dummy tourist was rigged up with with plaid Norfolk jacket, knee breeches, and a guidebook to Colorado. It was then filled full of giant gunpowder and fulminate caps 
and posted in a conspicuous place where, sure enough, the next day it attracted the attention of a bolter, which had been hanging for days on the slope of Lizard Head. The resulting explosion flattened half the buildings in Rico, which were never rebuilt, and the surrounding hills fattened flocks of buzzard the rest of the summer. Yes, eating the exploded remains of the Slide Rock Bolter. vengeful existence, resenting the intrusion of the logger, the agropelter deals misery to the lumberjack from Maine to Oregon. Ill fares the man who attempts to pass a hollow tree in which one of these creatures has taken up its temporary abode. The unfortunate is usually found smashed or pinned by a dead branch and reported as having been killed by a falling limb. So unerring is the aim of the agro-pelter that despite diligent search, I have been unable to locate more than one man who has been the target for one of their missiles and yet survived to describe the beast. This is big old Kittleson, who, upon a certain occasion, when cruising timber on the upper St. Croix, was knocked down by a partly rotten limb thrown by an agro-pelter. This limb was so punky that it shattered on Ole's head, and he had time to observe the rascally beast before it bounded from the tree and whisked itself off through the woods. According to Ole, the animal has a slender, wiry body and villainous face of an ape, and arms like muscular whiplashes, with which it can snap off dead branches and hurl them through the air like shells from a six-inch gun. It is supposed to feed upon hoot owls and woodpeckers, the scarcity of which will always prevent the agropelter from becoming numerous in any locality. Thank you again, David Attenborough. Now, the splinter cat. Oh, my God. Felix arbordificus. A widely distributed and frightfully destructive animal is the splinter cat. It is found from the Great Lakes to the Gulf and eastward through the Atlantic Ocean, but in the Rocky Mountains has been reported from only a few localities. Apparently, the splinter cat inhabits that part of the country in which wild bees and raccoons abound. These are its natural food, and the animal puts in every dark and stormy night shattering trees in search of raccoons or honey. It doesn't use any judgment in selecting raccoon trees or bee trees, but just smashes one tree after another until a hollow one containing food is found. The method used by this animal in its destructive work is simple but effective. It climbs one tree and from the uppermost branches bounds down and across toward the tree it wishes to destroy, striking squarely with its hard face. The splinter cat passes right on, leaving the tree broken and shattered as though struck by lightning or snapped off by the wind. Appalling destruction has been wrought by this animal in the Gulf states, where its work in the shape of erect 
forest is often ascribed to windstorms. But no, no, not windstorms. Splinter Cat. In the spring of 1906, there appeared suddenly in the coast ranges of California an uncanny animal from the region of the Isthmus. Isthmus. Yes, Isthmus. It is not a large beast, but what it lacks in size, it makes up in meanness of disposition. None of the lumberjacks who have met the Central American Wind Tosser on trail or tote road is that, is that what it says? Tote road? T-O-T-E? I don't know. Care to have the experience repeated. The Central American Wind Tosser is always looking for trouble or making it. In fact, the beast seems to be constructed for the purpose of passing through unusual experiences. Its head is fastened to its body by a swivel neck. So is its short, tapering tail, and both can be spun around at the rate of a hundred revolutions a minute. The body is long and triangular, with three complete sets of legs. This is a great convenience in an earthquake country, since the animal is not disturbed by any convulsions of the earth. If the floor suddenly becomes the ceiling, it does not matter, for the wind tosser is always there with the legs. Its hair is bristly and all slants forward at a sharp angle. It has been found that a cat's nine lives are as nothing to the one possessed by a wind tosser. This animal may be shot, clubbed, or strung on a pike pole without stopping the wriggling, whirling motions, or the screams of rage. The only successful way of killing the beast is to poke it with a flume pipe so that all its feet strike the surface when it immediately starts to walk in three different directions at once and tears itself all apart. The Central American Wind Tosser, Cephalovertens Semperambulatus. The Hyampum Hogbear, <laughs> ranging from the mouth of the Columbia River southward to the Klamath, woodsmen report the existence of a bear known as the Hyampum Hogbear. This is a small, sharp-nosed, curly-haired variety of the black and brown bear of the coast ranges. To appreciate the importance of this animal, one must remember that hog ranches are common in northwest California. The country there is particularly adapted to hog raising, and the industry would be attractive and highly profitable were it not for the existence of the hog bear. The mountain slopes are covered with scrubby and creeping oaks, which bear prodigious crops of sweet and very nutritious acorns. These naturally ripen earliest upon the lower slopes where the young hogs begin to feed. As the acorns higher up the slopes begin to ripen, the hogs ascend the mountain, each week finding them a few hundred feet higher and many pounds fatter. About Christmas time, the last of the acorns are reached on the upper slopes, and the hogs have by that time become so fat that their legs scarcely reach the ground. <laughs> and the slightest jar is all that is required to start them rolling down the mountain, where they may be easily gathered and butchered. It is at this period that the hog bear gets in its destructive work. He mooches along the base of the mountains before the rancher has time to rustle his pork, and finding hogs so plentiful and so helplessly fat, he takes just one bite out of the back of each, leaving the porker squealing with agony and the rancher swearing with rage. <laughs> that's pretty much that's that's pretty much the hyampum hog bear. So those are some selections from Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods by William T. Cox and Coeur Dubois. Coeur Dubois, the illustrator. But not included are a couple of favorites. 
The Glowacus I actually talked about in a previous episode of Torrent's Guide to Everything, so I won't go on with that. The Jackalope, everyone knows about. The rabbit with the antlers of an antelope or deer. There's a few snakes. The Snow Snake, a snake that is only active during winter months. Highly venomous, white-colored serpent that lives in the snow. I think I saw this in the Monster Manual for Dungeons and Dragons. But the Hoop Snake... The distinguishing feature of a hoop snake is that it can grasp its tail in its jaws and roll after its prey like a wheel. Similar to the Ouroboros, Ouroboros, Ouroboros in Greek mythology, or the Tsuchinoko in Japan. Yeah, you didn't know about that one, did you? As described uh, in a letter from 1784. As other serpents crawl upon their bellies, so can this. But he has another method of moving peculiar to his own species which he always adopts when he is in eager pursuit of his prey. He throws himself into a circle, running rapidly around, advancing like a hoop, with his tail arising and pointed forward to the circle, by which he is always in the ready position of striking. In one version of the myth, the snake straightens out at the last second, skewering its victim with its venomous tail. The only escape is to hide behind a tree, which receives the deadly blow instead and promptly... And uh, <laughs> and promptly dies from the poison. But also, the joint snake of the southern United States. Supposedly, the snake can break itself or be cut into pieces and will reassemble itself. It is said that if a piece of the snake is taken and the pocket knife used to cut the snake is set down in the place of the snake's piece, the knife will join up with the whole of the snake. Ooh, knife snake. Snickety snack. Uh, the myth is probably based on legless lizards that can regenerate their tails after they are broken off. Such lizards are often called joint, or more commonly, glass snakes. And a joint snake symbolizes the American colonies in Benjamin Franklin's 1754 political co- cartoon, Join or Die. <laughs> I gotta find that one. Before we move on, before I go, we have to talk about the side hill gouger and the hide behind. I forgot to talk about the hide behind. All right. Hide behind first. The hide behind mentioned briefly earlier is a nocturnal fearsome critter from American folklore that preys upon humans that wander the woods and was blamed for the disappearances of early loggers when they failed to return to camp. As its name suggests, the hide behind is noted for its ability to conceal itself. But it sounds a lot like the, uh, what do you call it? What was it called? The whirly worker, the whirly whooper, the hooby hooper. The, the Mr. Hooper, the Sesame Streeter, Snuffleupagus, Newport News. Uh, oh, God, where is that guy? The Whirling Wumpus? Yeah, the Whirling Wumpus. <laughs> God damn it. As its name suggests, the hill, the hide behind, the Hildebrand, the hide behind is noted for its ability to conceal itself. When an observer attempts to look directly at it, the creature hides behind an object or the observer and therefore cannot be directly seen. The hide-behind uses this ability to stalk human prey without being observed and to attack without warning. Their victims, including lumberjacks and others who frequent the forest, are then dragged back to the creature's lair to be devoured. The creature subsists chiefly upon the intestines of its victim and has a severe aversion to alcohol, which is considered a sufficient repellent. (laughs) Oh, that's convenient. The hide-behind appeared in the Gravity Falls short, Dipper's Guide to the Unexplained, The Hide-Behind. Isn't that interesting? Oh, there's a Hide Behind 2018 short horror film by Parker Finn. And lastly, as promised, the Side Hill Gouger. A fearsome critter adapted to living on hillsides by having legs on one side of their body shorter than the legs on the other side. 
This peculiarity allows them to walk on steep hillsides, although only in one direction. When lured or chased into the plain, they are trapped in an endless circular path. Since the gouger is footed for hillsides, it cannot stand up on level ground. If by accident a gouger falls from a hill, it can easily be captured or starved to death. When a clockwise gouger meets a counterclockwise gouger, they have to fight to the death since they can only go in one direction. Gougers are said to have migrated to the west from New England, a, fa- a feat accomplished by a pair of gougers who clung to each other in a fashion comparable to, quote, a pair of drunks going home from town with their longer legs on the outer sides. There are many other fearsome critters. The axe handle hound, uh, which eats only axe handles that are left unattended. The bald tailed cat, the cactus cat, the fur bank trout. It goes on and on. Check your local internet, my friends, for more fearsome critters. If you've enjoyed my guide to fearsome critters. So while I was researching this topic on the internet, I discovered a board game that had just finished its Kickstarter like the week before I started recording. It's called Fearsome Wilderness, published by Geektopia Games and designed by a fellow named Matt, Dystopia Matt on Instagram, in which players take control of four legendary folk heroes cooperating to survive in the wilderness and build a log cabin in which to live out their days. The heroes will have to gather food, water, and fell the required trees, all the while defending themselves from various fearsome critters of American folklore. The first thing that popped out of me was the miniatures that are designed for this game. You don't have to have the miniatures to play the game. The designs are just out of this world. Amazing. They've got almost everything I've talked about on this episode and many, many more. They got the cactus cat. They got the axe handle hound, the agropelter, the glowacus, the gumbaroo, the hide behind, the hoogag, the hoop snake, all these crazy things. And of course, the miniatures for the players, Paul Bunyan, Calamity Jane, Johnny Appleseed, Babe the Blue Ox. Uh, whimsical and horrifying at the same time. So I reached out to Matt Cross and I asked him a few questions and I want to share his answers with you. Although the Kickstarter is was successfully funded, they are going to make the game available for non-backers. And if you have a 3D printer or access to a 3D printer, you can get the STL files on My Mini Factory. There are 25 Critter Minis in all and they also have uh, cool terrain, trees and the campsite and all that kind of stuff. And Matt is working on an RPG for this setting using the Year Zero engine. But he wanted to have a game with a cool story and a campaign and more things to do. It has a wilderness survival aspect to it, inspired by a man named Dick Pronik, Pronik, Proniki, who lives alone in Alaska. And he just really wanted to do something different. You know, fearsome, the fearsome critters is not something that's really on everyone's radar these days. But maybe after this episode... So go to geektopiagames.com slash fearsome wilderness and check that out. Hey, it's Sarah from Adventure EXE. Why not tell your friends about Torn's Guide to Everything? If you have ideas for future episodes, questions, or just want to complain, well, you're going to have to go and like the Facebook page, subscribe to Torn Atkinson's YouTube channel, and tweet him at at thickets. And if you like this content, go to patreon.com slash tornatkinson and throw him a couple of your Earth dollars. Torin would love it. Music generously provided by Thomas Falk. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the internet. <laughs>